to uh, be able to share this service with you and this message. It's been a it's been a joy to uh, to do that. Um, as you can tell from the video, there are no suits in heaven, so I'm looking forward to that, being able to take this off and just relax up there. But today we uh, we close our our whole series on the idea of an inconvenient truth, trying to look at the scriptures in an honest and an authentic way and and just taking a real look at what the Bible does say about some very important topics, topics that sometimes when we read them, we get a little bit uncomfortable, topics that sometimes when we read them are a little bit inconvenient for us. And um, as we think about those and as we walk through those different passages, they're, they're inconvenient for for those who are outside of the faith and kind of seeking and searching and trying to understand what Christianity and following Christ is all about. Sometimes the uh, issues that we talk about are inconvenient for those of us who are Christ followers. And regardless of how long we've been following Christ, sometimes what God says is a bit challenging and a bit inconvenient, if you will. And sometimes as we look at these things, they're inconvenient for both of us. And uh, we just have to be faithful to God's Word, rest in it, rely on it, and see and search out uh, what He is trying to say to us uh, in His Word. And so we trust that you've uh, uh, liked and enjoyed these different messages that we've brought to you. And uh, we conclude today with a message that, once again, is just like all of the other ones that we've talked about can be a little inconvenient at times as we take a look at the reality of heaven and hell. And today we are uh, tag-teaming this message. Pastor Rick and I will be looking at uh, different points. We'll be coming at the, the topic from, from different angles. And as you know, picked up on the video, I'll be presenting the, uh, the angle of hell, and Pastor Rick will come and present the uh, angle of heaven. But to begin with, what I thought we'd do is take a look at some of the misconceptions that we have of hell. What are some of the character, characterizations or the, the misunderstandings about hell and then a little bit later about heaven? And perhaps some of these will be new to you, but I'm going to guess that for a lot of us, they are very familiar in our different understandings or at least the characterizations that we've seen in our culture between heaven and hell. First of all, when we think of hell, um, probably one of the first images that pops into our mind are those of a devil with a horn and pitchforks running around somewhere in this underworld. And uh, we, we see images that are depicted as, as playful, as we read some in cartoons and, and newspapers, and sometimes they are depicted as seductive characters, and other times the characters that we see coming from hell are just blatantly evil. But however they're depicted, there's an image of a red suit, horns, and a pitchfork, somebody running around. Now, we were going to try to replicate that this morning, and I was going to come out with that, but I thought my suit was better. So, we just stayed with that. The other, the other image, or the other misunderstanding that we see about hell comes from pop culture, comes from our society and the images that our pop culture tries to impress upon us, and that of hell being a party. It's portrayed as a fun environment 
where people are going to, to hang out with their friends and just party all the time. In fact, ACDC in their popular song, Highway to Hell, included these lyrics. Nothing I would rather do, going down party time. My friends are going to be there too. No stop signs, speed limit. Nobody's going to slow me down. I'm on my way to my promised land. I'm on the highway to hell. That's the message that's being communicated in our pop culture. Even more recently, in the movie 300, in preparing for a great battle, the character Spartan King Leonidas exclaims, Tonight we dine in hell. There's this imagery of hell being a place where we will be reunited with friends and and um, people that we've associated with. There's this image of hell being a place where where there there's a party going on at all times without any kind of consequence. There's a feast happening there that we can gather around a table and enjoy with our friends. Now I understand artistic license. And I understand that in music and movies. But the problem is, the continued message that is presented to people is that hell is a place of fun and feasting without consequence. And that is what we've heard. But that is simply not true. And as with some of our notions about uh, hell, so we have some mistaken notions about heaven as well. I venture a guess that, that if we were to poll all of you this morning and ask you for some descriptions of heaven, that you would uh, come up with some things that would be fairly standard. Some of us, when we think of heaven, we have this vague idea that heaven is some ethereal, uh, misty realm where uh, we float on clouds all day plucking harps and polishing our halos for all of eternity. Others of us think uh, of heaven as a never-ending church service. It's just singing one song after another, one great hymn after another, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. And because of some of these ideas that we've concluded that heaven uh, will be a fairly monotonous or boring place, Some years ago, I remember a friend of mine made a fairly startling confession to me. He said, whenever I think of heaven, it makes me depressed. He said, I think I'd rather just cease to exist than to go to heaven when I die. I tried not to register my shock at his statement. And I asked him, why do you feel that way? And he said, I just, Rick, I I just can't stand the thought of the endless boredom that we're going to have to put up with in heaven. To float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It seems so terribly boring to me. Unfortunately, there are many people who feel that way. And unfortunately, some of our ideas of heaven have been uh, cultivated more by uh, television programs like Touched by an Angel than they have been uh, cultivated and shaped by what the Scriptures have to say. 
And so in a few moments, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this uh, glorious future that awaits those who trust in Christ. You know, the scriptures are not silent on the on what heaven is like, and the scriptures are not silent at all on what hell is like. The problem is we've just kind of failed to, at least in our in our personal study time, to, to look at those scriptures in depth. And I think sometimes the church uh, overall has, has done a disservice for people in not sharing the truths of hell. And there's probably a lot of different reasons for that. Probably we just want to be politically correct and not not really offend anyone with the things that we believe or the notions that we have. And what I hope you know from this church and this preaching and this series is we are not a church or a staff that is worried about being politically correct. We are a church that is more concerned about being scripturally correct. And probably another reason we don't people don't like to talk about it is because they don't want to face the reality of it. But the scriptures are, are clear on what the reality of hell is for those who are destined to go there. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shares a parable about the coming, the coming kingdom of God and what that will look like. While he uses a lot of different word pictures and a lot of different uh, symbolisms in that parable, he also uses some very specific language when speaking about the reality of hell. He writes these words in Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 and 50. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then again in Luke's Gospel, Luke records this parable of Jesus that we read about earlier. Pastor Dave read it for us at the very uh, uh, beginning of this service. The, the, the passage in Luke chapter 16. And I want to pull out these verses 23 and 24. In this parable, he says this. In hell, where he was in torment... He looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. What is clear, as Jesus spoke and taught about hell, are a number of things. First of all, hell is a real place. This is not some figment of imagination. It is a real place of destiny. Regardless of how this makes us feel, whether it makes us um, upset or nervous or, or, you know, we just don't want to talk about that right now. Regardless of how it makes us feel, hell is a real place. It is a fact. That hell exists, and it is the destiny of some people. Now, throughout the scriptures, you will see different words used to talk about hell or the concept of hell. You'll see the words Hades or Sheol or Gehenna. And generally speaking, hell is used in scripture 
to refer to a place of future punishment for the wicked dead. Jesus was clear that hell is a real place. He was also clear that hell is a place of conscious torment and pain. Matthew talks about a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are expressions of rage and sorrow, deep sorrow for for the place that a person finds themselves. And this word picture is used time and again. Matthew chapter 8 verse 12, 22 verse 13, chapter 24 verse 51, chapter 25 verse 30. Again, the Scriptures are not silent. We don't have to guess at what hell is like. Hell is a place of pain. Hell is a place of torment. There is weeping. There is gnashing of teeth. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 24, again, in this same story that Jesus is relating, Jesus relates about the rich man who went to hell, his desire to have his tongue cooled Because he is in agony. The pain and the torment is conscious. He can feel it. He can touch it. It invades his person. He is in agony and he wants relief. Hell is a place of pain. It is portrayed by fire and burning with agony and weeping. This is not a place where there is a party. This is not a place where there is a feast. It is not some great reunion of rock bands where they get to go and hang out and play their music forever. It is a plain place of pain and torture. And in the middle of that, there is the desire to be relieved. There is the desire for others to avoid this place. People know what is happening to them when they are in hell. The rich man wanted Lazarus to be sent back and to warn his brothers about this place of torment. The other thing that we understand from reading the Scriptures is that hell, hell is eternal. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then again in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Now we talk about heaven, and when we talk about heaven and the gloriousness of heaven, we talk about eternal life. But for some people, when they try to wrap their brain around hell, we forget that that there is eternal life in heaven and we just think hell is going to be a place of 
pain and, and punishment for maybe just a, a short period of time. And, and then maybe there's an option to get out or maybe there's there's some way of, of just annihilation. Things will just end. But the scriptures are clear. Hell is eternal. It does not end. The pain, the torture, the punishment. And the scriptures are clear again. There is no escape on that side of eternity. Once we die, we secure our eternal destiny. There's no going back. There's no changing the consequences of our decisions or the failure to make decisions to follow Christ. There's no second chance. There's not another option. On that side of eternity, there is a great chasm that is fixed. Again, we read about it in Luke chapter 16, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's a reality. When this life on earth as we know it ceases, our eternal destiny is secure. It is either a place of eternal punishment or it will be a place of eternal life. I think it's so important uh, to emphasize that point that, that Ben has just made, the eternality, the permanence of this destiny. The justified to glory, the condemned who have not trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ to a place of conscious torment. It's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around these realities. And as Ben has said, it's easy for us, I think, to step away from them and and try not to pay attention to these scriptural truths. Ben has given us a, a brief overview of what hell is like. Uh, I want to do the same thing uh, and look at what the Bible says heaven is like. And as with hell, heaven is a real place. It is an eternal place. It's not a figment of our imaginations. It's not just a feeling or an emotion. It is a place, a place as real as Chicago or London or New York. Listen to the words of Jesus on the night before he was crucified As he speaks to his disciples, he says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare, what's the word that Jesus uses? A place for you. And if I go and prepare, what's the word? A place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Twice in those three verses, Jesus calls heaven a place. He means that heaven, in his words, his father's house, is a real place. It's not just a state of thinking, but it is a real place, just as real as the place that you call home. It's a real place that's filled with real people, which is why the Bible sometimes compares heaven to a mansion with many rooms. 
and sometimes refers to heaven as an enormous city that teems with multitudes of people. The Bible also tells us that heaven is the dwelling place of God, that that God's throne is there, that the angels are there, that the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. In fact, uh, as we have worshipped here this morning, God is in His heaven and seated at His right hand, according to the Scriptures, is Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord on high. Philippians 3.20 tells us that as followers of Jesus Christ, that our citizenship is actually in heaven, that you and I are citizens of heaven, that already, even before we've died and gone to this place of our eternal destiny, that already we are living in the heavenly, so to speak, because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been adopted by the Father into His eternal family, and we are now eagerly awaiting that day which He will call us to our heavenly home. And we await uh, that with an expectant hope. This is a real place. That's why Jesus told the thief on the cross, uh, uh, the repentant thief on the cross, today you will be with me, the word Jesus uses there as He hung on the cross, is the word paradiso. Uh, it's a real place. Uh, it also, I think, is fascinating that the Bible seems to describe that heaven is not as far away as we might think. Because heaven is a real place, we sometimes think that it must be somewhere outside of our universe, which means that it is billions and billions of light years away. However, it's very clear as you look at the thoughts of the early Christian fathers that the early Christians understood that they would pass immediately from this life on earth into the very presence of Christ in heaven. How could that be possible if heaven is beyond the farthest galaxy? The writer of Hebrews addresses this issue in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, and tells us, I think, something amazing about what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done for the redeemed people of God. Listen to the words of Hebrews. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a word that is better than the blood of of Abel. What's interesting there is that the writer of Hebrews is comparing Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. Under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament law, no one could come under uh, or near God except under very strict conditions. You'll remember that even on the Day of Atonement, that it was the only time in the year that the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and even then had to have a cord wrapped around his ankle in order uh, that if something would happen as he stands in this place where the glory of God is being poured out, that they could yank him out uh, by his ankle. Uh, you couldn't come near God except under very strict conditions. That's why when, when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, that, that the mountain shook with thunder and lightning. But the good news that the writer of Hebrews is declaring is that, that in Christ, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we are brought 
near to the heavenlies. That it's not far away, but that it's near. Think of what the writer is, is contending here. He's saying that we're not that far from heaven. We're not that far from the angels. We're not that far from our loved ones who are in heaven. That we're not that far from God. That we're not that far from Jesus Christ Himself. Heaven is a real place. It's where Jesus is right now. And it's not that far away. Oh, that we could have that kind of of, uh, mindset and eyesight that heaven is near. Uh, There are many people who say, well, what will heaven be like? What will we do? What will we wear? Uh, Will there be marriage in heaven? All of those things. We can't deal with all of those questions, but let me give you some biblical facts about heaven. And we're not going to be able to to explore each one, but you might want to write them down and look at the scripture portions that are attached to each one. Here's some biblical facts about heaven. First of all, it's God's dwelling place. We've looked at that briefly already. Psalm 33, 13. Secondly, it's where Christ is today, seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Acts 1, 11. It is where Christians go when they die. Listen to me. When you die, according to the Scripture, you do not go to some intermediate place. The medieval fathers thought this, and they suggested that there was this place. uh, uh, I think the Latin word was uh, limbo patrum, if I recall right. Uh, It is a place called limbo or purgatory. And that you could go there and that your surviving relatives, if they would pray enough prayers and give enough offerings, that's what the Reformation was all about, and Martin Luther and all of that in the 16th century, that they could spring you out of purgatory into glory. Listen to me. There is, according to the Scripture, there is no limbo. There is no purgatory. There's an appointment for you to die. And after you die, according to Scripture, the judgment. And you have one of two destinies. You will either go to this glorious uh, place called heaven, and the pictures and the descriptions that are given in the Scripture, or you will go to this place of conscious torment, a real place called hell. I know that sounds old-fashioned to our modern ears, our post-modern ears, but it is what the Scripture declares. It's where Christians go when they die. It is the Father's house, John 14, 2. It is a city designed and built by God. Think about it. God has built this city. Again, another word picture. Is it actually a city? Four square? Well, I don't know. That's the, that's the description that you get in Scripture. Uh, all I know is that God is building it and He's preparing it and God makes no mistakes. And if you wonder, just look at the glorious sky. Look at the the wonder of creation. God has designed and built this place. He's preparing a place for all those who put their faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.16 tells us it's a better country. Uh, Some of us think, well, how can it get much better than... Oh, it's going to be far better than you can ever imagine. And according to Luke 23.43, it is paradise. Now, most of us have heard that that heaven is a place where the the streets are paved with gold, the gates are made of pearl, the walls are made of jasper and precious jewels. And those images come from 
Revelations 21 and 22, and you can read that whole description. It's a wonderful, wonderful vision that God has given to John when he was exiled on Patmos of this glorious uh, future. Uh, and we have an extended picture of what heaven is like in that particular part of the Bible. If you ask me, do you believe those things are literally true? The answer is yes and no. You thought I was just going to say yes, didn't you? Yes, they are literally true. But heaven won't be anything like you imagine it to be. It will be much greater. Think about it. In heaven there will be no sin. No gossip. No backbiting. No slander. In heaven there will be no suffering. No arthritis. No heartburn. Throw the Prilosec and the Pepsid away. There'll be no sorrow. Revelation 21 says that, and God will wipe away their tears. Just think of that. Uh, it, there will be no occasion for any sorrow or heartache. There will be no pain, no discomfort. We, we will never do anything that will displease God. There will be no persecution. There will be no division. There'll be no church splits or disunity. There'll be no hate. In heaven, there'll be no quarrels or disagreements. There will be no disappointments. There will be no weeping because there will be nothing to be sad about in heaven. We will know perfect, perfect pleasure. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And everything that makes us groan and be weary and tired right now will finally be done away with. And we will find ourselves in the very presence of God Almighty where the purest and truest kind of pleasure is possible. In heaven, we'll have perfect knowledge. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Then I shall know even also as I am known. We will have perfect knowledge. We will have no more unanswered questions. No more scratching of the head saying, Well, I don't know. We'll have perfect knowledge. No confusion. No ignorance. No more need to walk by faith uh, rather than by sight because we'll have perfect knowledge. We will live in perfect comfort. We will never experience one, un, not one, uncomfortable moment in heaven. You don't seem to be very excited about this. We will finally know perfect love in heaven. Perfect. We will love God perfectly and we will be loved perfectly by Him for all of eternity. His love will engulf us forever. Won't that be a glorious thing? We could summarize that, that by saying that heaven is a place of perfection. Perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect rest. Think of it. We will be perfectly free from evil forever. We will never again have a selfish desire or, or utter useless words. We will never perform another unkind deed or think a sinful thought. Uh, we will be perfectly liberated from our captivity and our proneness to sin. And finally, we will be able to do that which is absolutely righteous and holy and perfect before God. And sin and sorrow will be erased forever. It will be a life of unimaginable blessing. It's good. And if hell is horrible to imagine, 
Eternal life in the presence of Jesus is infinitely beautiful to think about. And the happiness that the saints of God will have in the age to come will be more satisfying, more satisfying than all the moments of joy that you've experienced in this life. Has there ever been a moment when you thought, man, I just can't contain the happiness and joy. You were just bursting because you were so happy. Multiply that moment by a thousand times and increase it continually for all of eternity and you'll just get started on what the joy and perfection of heaven will be like. Do I believe there's streets of gold? Yeah, Do I believe that it's a glorious place? Yes. But heaven will be so much more than you and I could ever imagine. And the writers of Scripture are just grasping at word pictures to say, this is what it will be like. This, No, this is what it will be like. And all of those descriptors fall short of the reality. You may ask, well, what determines where I'll spend eternity? How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? The biblical truth that I want you to understand, to believe, and to live by today is this. That there is a time coming when every responsible person, on the basis of his or her actions and attitudes, will meet the final judgment of God, either for eternal life or the judgment of God's wrath and fury upon you. Every person within the sound of my voice this morning, as a single individual, you will not ride on the coattails of your relatives. You will not be able to buy into it because mom and dad did it or grandma and grandpa did it. Every person, as a single individual, will give a personal account of their life to God. The books of our lives will be open and we will stand before the judgment seat of the Creator of the universe and we will give an account for how we have lived our lives and fulfilled God's purposes for us on earth. Namely, have we trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ, and have we sought with the Spirit's help to love and obey Him and display God's glory and excellence in this world. You will give an individual account to God. Now, there are several pictures of that final judgment in the New Testament. We have time only to look at one, and I pray that the weight of this one descriptor of this final judgment will press in hard on each of us this morning. Revelations 20, verses 12 through 15 says that there are books in which the deeds of our lives are written, and there is another book in which the names of those who trusted in Christ, the trusted in the blood of the slain lamb, are written. And this is what John says in his revelation, Revelation 13, uh, 20, verses 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, listen, if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. Only those whose names were written into the book of life escape this everlasting punishment. How can you know you're going to heaven if you've placed your trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross? You, according to Scripture, have been justified. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted into the eternal family of God. You've been forgiven of your sins. Your names have been written down in the book of life. And your eternal destiny, praise the Lord, is this heavenly home that God is preparing for you. And you need not doubt that. You need not fret about that. You need not wring your hands about that. It, it, it's as simple as that. If you've trusted in Jesus and you've accepted His gift of grace and your sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, you are. This is your eternal hope. However, if a person has not done that and does not belong to Christ, is not in Christ, is not clothed with Christ's righteousness, has not trusted in the shed blood of the Lamb of God, that person is not in Christ. They are not saved. I know this sounds old-fashioned to our ears, but this is what the book says. And there is only for them eternal condemnation and conscious torment. You might wonder, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God do that? When someone asks that question, they are starting out with a wrong assumption. Hell is not a place that God has created out of anger or frustration for man. It is not a place where a sadistic tyrant takes out his frustration on people like us who are helpless creatures. Hell is a place where people are allowed to live with the consequences of their own choices, dire as they may be. You see, the most important thing for people to understand in dealing with this question, how could a loving God send anyone to hell, is that the Bible teaches that hell is a place where people go as a result of their choices, not God's. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, it is our sin. Not God, it is our sin that separates us from Him. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He hates that place. And the only thing that grieves Him more is when we reject His opportunities for grace. Second Peter verse 3, 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto eternal life. The very purpose in God sending His Son to Calvary was to make a way possible to bridge that gap between a holy God and sinful creatures like you and me. And God in His love has done everything necessary to deliver us from this place of conscious torment and eternal punishment. His justice requires that He punishes our sin, but His love provides has provided salvation freely for everyone who would place their trust. In Jesus Christ. God has done all that He can to save us. So any person who goes to that place goes there against the will of God. The renowned theologian D.A. Carson says this, Hell is not a place where people are consigned because they are pretty good blokes, but they just didn't believe the right stuff. They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their Maker and want to be at the center of the universe. Carson continues, Hell is not filled with people who have already repented, 
Only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. Hell is filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe and who persist in their God-defying rebellion. So I ask you as we close this morning, what about you? Where are you headed? Where will you spend eternity? To me, this question is of utmost importance. And it's one that has eternal consequences. And at this very moment, Jesus in His grace is reaching out to some. He's, by His Holy Spirit, He's moving. And, and, and this message on heaven and hell maybe is brand new understanding for you. I want you to know that Jesus is, is near. And, and He's offering His gift of eternal life to you. And He wants to bring you into close relationship with Him. And, and Jesus will forgive any sin if, if you'll be contrite and humble enough and repent. But He will not forgive our sinful choice to reject His Son. Please understand, this is a choice you cannot avoid. Oh, you might be able to delay it for a bit. But this is a choice that you cannot avoid. And refusing to choose is the same thing as choosing to say no to God. My encouragement to you this morning is if if there's any lack of clarity for you about your eternal destiny, if you don't have the assurance that that the the promise of heaven is yours, then then I urge you before you go out and do anything else today, do some some business with God today. You spend some time talking to God and and maybe you need to spend some time on your knees before God and repenting of your sin and and saying, Lord, I I want to, to believe and understand and trust and know and have this assurance. This is the most important decision that that anyone can ever make from a spiritual point of view regarding your eternal destiny. Life, says the Bible, life here and now in this world is like a vapor. It's like the steam coming off of a cup of hot coffee. It's here, and in an instant, it's gone. Life is a vapor. And before us is all of eternity. Where will you spend eternity? In heaven? Or in this place of conscious torment? In hell? Would you bow your heads and let's pray together? God has told us in His Word that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. It is with our heart that we believe and are justified and it is with our mouth that we confess and are saved. Father, in these closing moments, we ask that you would draw us to a point of decision. If we've not ever paused to to think of that choice, I pray that we would do so today. 
I pray, Lord, that, that those who are wavering between this idea of heaven and this idea of hell and, and where would I spend eternity if I had to give an answer right now? I pray that your spirit would guide them to your truth. You don't desire that anyone should perish. And God, that is not the desire of this church either. That is why we are passionate about this message. It does matter. It is so important that we convey this truth. Because on this side of eternity, it's the only chance we have to make that decision. If you're sitting here today and you want to make that decision to embrace Christ, to have Him forgive your sins, to secure your destiny of eternal life, and to give you fullness of life, here on earth. I simply ask that you would pray these words. Father, I'm a sinner and I need you. I confess that you are the Lord of my life from here forward. And I believe that God has raised you from the dead to give new life to me life eternal. Father, would you seal those words and that truth on our hearts today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.